Welcome to My One Question Is. This is a monthly podcast at the intersection of art, race, story, and hope. We're calling it an adventure and listening. We're asking questions. We're amplifying voices in the Akron art community. We want to break down cultural barriers through art and conversation. I'm Laura, and they're Jesse. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Denise Harrison. I teach at Kent State University. I teach in the English department. I teach writing courses in the Department of Africana Studies. I think the kind of teacher I am is that I teach advocacy, but before I can teach advocacy, I have to give them some information and let them know that it's okay to ask questions and to be ignorant because I realize our students just don't know what they don't know. All we know about you so far is that you're a teacher, but you're so many other things. So, okay. I think I start with teacher because even when I was a little kid, I played school and I was the teacher and even any other job I've ever had, I'm a teacher. And my husband says that when I go out to a bar and I talk to people, I'm teaching. So, so I guess that comes first, (laughs) but I'm also an artist. Um, I do social activist quilting. I also am a paper card artist. I'm a parent. I have four adult children. I see things through an artistic lens and uh, I think art can help us. Denise, um, moving on that, how does trust impact the work that you do? Well, really that I have to expect that students are going to trust me because I'm going to ask them to be vulnerable. Like, for example, to be wrong or to not know something. And uh, they have to trust that I'm not going to use that against them. And I have to go in that classroom and say, trust me, this is the material that I'm going to present At the end of this semester, if you listen to what I'm asking you to do, you'll do well in the class grade-wise. But beyond that, I'm looking at where you're going to be in the marketplace because most students are not coming to the university just to get knowledge for knowledge's sake. Some, very few, but most are not. And so they are getting knowledge so that they can get degrees so they go to the marketplace and they can compete. I want them to understand that by taking a class with me, they're gonna be better at competing simply because they'll have a different worldview when they leave the class that may be a little bit more inclusive than it was when they walked into the class. That warms my heart. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, next question. Tell us a story about how trust has impacted you personally or in the work you do. Okay, I would say in in the work that I'm doing, especially my vision of what I want to bring to the Indigenous community with this particular project, that I learned a long time ago, it takes time, that you have to meet people where they are, and that I have to go in without an agenda, which is hard, right? Because uh, anytime you want to do anything, you're taking yourself there and you're, you're walking into a community that is different than your own. While I know a lot, I know nothing. And I 
don't assume that the lot that I know is enough to meet people where they are. The other thing is listen. I just have to listen. One organization that I've been trying to connect with, it's been a two-year process of leaving voicemails, meeting people who know someone who says to me, well, you need to contact this person. I contact that person. I may not get a response. And then I might contact that person again. And that's, that's part of the trust. At the end of my conversation with a woman this past weekend, um, we're standing at the counter of the restaurant paying the bill and she's thanking the people who allowed us to stay longer and chat with each other. And just behind our backs, I reached back and she grabbed my hand. I grabbed her hand and we squeezed. And that was just a spontaneous moment, right? Um, we couldn't let each other go when we walked out because we were so engaged with one another. I had a conversation about um, Jesse Little Doe Baird who had recovered the Wapagoan language. And I was relating the story to her about a young woman who had came to Jesse's class and had acquired the language and no one knew that this woman was ill. And ultimately she passed away from cancer. But before she did, she asked Jesse to come to her hospital bed. And Jesse brought other women from the community with her. And the woman passed away knowing that when she transitioned, she'll be able to meet the ancestors and speak to them in her language. I'm tearing up now because I teared up then. I couldn't stop crying, telling that story. Um, the power of language that we can make a transition, a, a, a very difficult transition, but be comforted that when you see your ancestors, you'll speak the same language. They will know you by your voice. They'll know you by the words you use. I, I think that's powerful. Yeah, very powerful. I'm gonna need a blanket because I'm <laughs> shivering by all those, those strong words here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I just, and I've told this story before, but talking to a Lenape woman um, who's talking to me so much in her language, trying to teach me how to say words, the guttural sounds, all of that stuff. And I tried best as I could to replicate those sounds. Uh, when I told that story, it, it was so much more personal. And it's not my story, but it touched me really deeply. Doing that act of retelling that story to someone who understands that kind of pain and also that transition um, moved both of us. That's awesome. The shared human experience. Mm -hmm. And that's that's about seeing one another's humanity, right? We keep uh, in the African American community. I think one of the most powerful things for us, and the most hurtful thing for us, is that we have to keep asserting our humanity uh, in light of the violence against us by the police, violence within our own community. Um, it's hard. 
to, to reconcile that. What happened to that person that know that kind of pain and, and can't connect? Yeah, I think it's important to just to remember that it's really easy to us and them, for example, or people who just aren't trying hard enough. There's a big narrative about that in society. Well, if they just went and got a job or if they just went and tried harder and, and I'm with you, I think connecting with we have no idea what happened to them before this moment when we've encountered them or before the first time we heard this story or we have no idea what came before that, but people in pain act a certain way. Yeah, other than that, somebody's son or daughter or child or their mother or father, uh, an aunt or uncle. So that's what I mean about connecting to the humanity of a person. We know they were birthed on this earth from someone. We don't know their story, but they didn't just drop down out of the sky. And somebody somewhere loves them, right? Yes, yes, we, and we hope. And if not, um, clearly there are people who are passing them by who give them some love. And I know with my own children, that's what I want, that I have a son who has mental health issues. And I, I hope people are humane to him sometimes he can be difficult, difficult for me to handle and difficult for me <laughs> to uh, deal with sometimes. And, but I know there are other people who clearly dearly love him all the time they're around him. I think that's, that's the power of seeing somebody's humanity because I know from my sister that people, that my son was around the, last, the 14 years he lived in San Francisco, dearly loved him. And I'm grateful to them for that because they helped him in times when I couldn't help him, not just distance, but I just didn't know how. And so I'm grateful to them for that. That's a really solid point you make there about not knowing how to help people sometimes or not knowing how to love them. Yeah, hopefully hopefully with this podcast too, we can find ways to connect with people too. Yeah. And you know, maybe answer a few of those questions through the course of this. Yeah. Um, and that sort of leads into that, this next question here. We mentioned this project mm -hmm. and uh, referring to Not Your Mother's Quilting Bee, um, I just, we just wanted to know what is your vision for Not Your Mother's Quilting Bee? Well, my vision for Not Your Mother's Quilting Bee is we take something that has been central as women's craft or women's work. Uh, some would say craft, I would say art. And we allow a community to dictate how they want to use that to tell their story. A story about people who have been, are, have been seen and unseen, here and not here, uh, invisible to us, but visible to themselves and help us to see them. And to do that through storytelling and the art of quilting. I wanted to do quilting as a way to make a connection with the indigenous community locally. And I love the art of quilting, not just where we have uh, particular patterns and grids, but actually learning to go outside of those. Because one of the things I understood is African-American women who were enslaved, who were making quilts in the households that they were in, 
made those quilts exactly like they were told to do them. But when they did their own, they deviated. And then what I saw was white women who saw those quilts that deviated from those grids and patterns and they adopted them. And a lot of times they didn't give credit to the women who really showed them how to leave those patterns. That's not a path that I wanna take. I wanna have enough conversation with people that from the way that I speak with and listen to them, we can build trust and we can build relationships, but I know it takes time. I think trust just takes time. If this project is meant to be, people will come towards it. I would say one of the things that I learned initially when I conceived the idea was that we needed to have fabric made by uh, an indigenous person. So I found fabric that was designed by a woman by the name of Christine Bellacourt from Canada. And she does this incredible bead work. And so she designed fabric with the symbols of those beads on the fabric. Well, as I started to get into this, I realized that's not my place to get fabric from Christine Bellacourt. Uh, Bellacourt. What I do is make her known to the community. So if the community decides they want fabric from her, then we get fabric from her. Uh, the woman that I met, Rena Dennison, uh, beats. And so one of the things I also saw is that maybe beading is something that's going to be on those quilts. I've seen enough now of Indigenous quilters, and there's a wealth of designs and artists that until the project was even thought of, I never even looked at that as a possibility. Um, I looked at um, the things that indigenous women wore. I looked at blankets that were woven and I looked of course at pottery, but I never really made that connection that quilting is three things. You have a piece of fabric on the top, you have a piece of fabric in the middle and you have a piece of fabric on the back. A backing that those three things coming together is quilting now how people materialize that is wide open and my hope is that as people tell their stories as we learn and we bring in a quilt master only in the sense that that person can teach folks who don't know how to use a needle and thread to use a needle and thread uh, but that needle and thread may also go through buckskin it may go through beads. It may involve feathers. It may involve ribbon. It may involve a number of things that the community says to create what I'm calling a quilt. I love that. So like around quilting and storytelling, just sort of an organic, let's see what happens. Exactly. And if it's not that, then it's, we've, inscribed our own selves on this project. And, and I want to not do that. I want to be the medium that says, this is a possibility, what do you wanna do with it? And then let's see what, what organically comes because really that is how the community works. It listens, it relates, builds relationships and, and those relationships are not just among people. They're among 
plants and animals and air and water and fire and all of those elements that those of us who are not indigenous typically just don't even think about. And so it's a way to allow all of us to stretch. And I'm looking forward to, to having to do that, right? That, that demand on me to think differently and see differently uh, because I'm listening. Um, I'm excited about the possibility. You've talked about indigenous members of the community maybe being like less represented in the Akron area. So if you were gonna invite people to participate, what would you say to them? And that's, that's a really interesting thing because I've been working up, uh, writing up something that I can take with me a little card on Thursday when we meet uh, Joy Harjo as a way to introduce the project to folks. Um, I would ask them uh, to bring themselves to be willing to maybe tell some stories and that we understand that there's pain associated with that. And we thought through it enough to say that we have invited a holy woman to help guide us. And that we know that that takes time. So we are not putting an end date on this. We know that when it comes to funding, the funding may have an end date but however long it takes us to listen, to get to the point that we can start building uh, our ideas of what this quilt will look like. And it may be not just one quilt, it may be a series of quilt panels and that too is okay. Um, but if they will welcome us in this project, we will, take whatever time it needs to build a trust and then actually start to commit to creating something and and that that evolves our organically and even the invitation it has to be a, a conversation um and and i see that people are already coming towards us when i talk about it um but that has to be formalized for some people for other people it the woman I spoke with the other day, Arena, um, she said, can my sister be a part of this? I said, yes. And then I asked how many uh, books and journals do you need me to bring you in pens? And she said four. And I say, well, you know, maybe somebody will hear you talking about it and you'll need five. So I'll give you five to start. And if we need more, we get more. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about the organic nature of it. It's just, it's a, it seems a very different way to think about a project, especially coming from project management background of rigid rules around everything, but it makes sense. It definitely, it, I hear you talk about that. It definitely, it's, it works. Yeah, I am really, I'm excited to be a part of it and to see where that goes. I want to know, like, how how you see that process working and again, how trust will affect that relationship with the communities we're working with too. Yeah. And I, how you see that growing? I think it grows through word of mouth. People see us and become a part of it and, and talk about it uh, after having conversation with me or someone else. 
uh, say that they want to be a part of it. That's that's how it'll grow. Uh, because we're talking about a community too, that like the African-American community, in terms of our identity is identities, right? Um, there's no one way to be African-American. And, and one of the things that I find troubling is sometimes people in our community want us to qualify our blackness. Um, you know, if you wear dreads, then you're really down with the culture, <laughs> which is what I wear. But I have no ability to use slang language. So that might, I might lose my blackness card because I can't use slang language. I've never used it. Um, I, for some people, I sound very academic, very much like I'm from a European community. Uh, with my best friend, I could use a little slang language because she allows it without laughing at me, right? Um, so there's that qualification of what it means to be Black. I understand how that qualification works. Uh, when it comes to indigeneity, I think the other thing is to allow people who will come towards us to not have to qualify their indigeneity. And there may be some conflict with some folks who may come towards us, but I will tell this story about what it means to be Black and African-American and have people talk about well, you're not really black. Um, you don't, you can't dance because I can't, I can't dance. I try very hard to dance, but if, um, if I had to get in by dancing, I would lose my card because I cannot dance. And so I, I do understand that. And, and in my family, that was one of the things they told my husband uh, when he met me, he's white, right? And they said, she can't dance. And he said, you know, and, and listen to how she talks. And he said to me that that evening, you know, most times when people introduce folks to their family, they try and tell you their best points. <laughs> he said, doesn't matter that you can't dance. That's that's nothing. That means nothing. Uh, so I, I just I want people to understand. I get that. I get how someone will try and divide you against yourself by giving these false ideas of qualifications. And I've lived that. Um, so I don't wanna do that. I wanna say if people hear us, hear me talk about this project, hear the people who have come forward, that they'll wanna come forward too. And together we can make something pretty powerful. That's awesome. Like kind of like you remember when you say you are or you're a part of the quilting bee when you say you are. And yeah, because yeah. I'm not going to say you can't be a part of it uh, when someone says, well, my sister, can she be a part of this? Absolutely. I'm trusting you that if you say your sister wants to be a part of this, your sister should be a part of this. Yeah, I think they call that like as the spirit moves, right? Right, exactly. In all religions, I think that's like In a all religions, all cultures. There is a... Um, poem that I use in class by um, Joshua Bennett, Dr. Bennett. He's one of my favorite human beings. Incredible scholar, incredible speaker, poet, spoken word poet. And he does this poem about seeing it, say it as the spirit moves you. And it's from a, a poet by the name of Vivi 
Francis. I had no idea who she was until he used her words in his poem. And he also used Lucille Clistam's poem about how every day, she celebrate every day because something has always tried to kill her and she keeps going, hasn't been successful. And so I take those two women from Joshua Bennett's poem and then he goes on, excuse me, about a litany of things that in some way the old me would have disqualified how uh, someone named themselves. But his poem is so powerful about naming and how we see ourselves and how we claim the uniqueness that is us, our humanity. That's what I want people to bring to this project, whoever you are. This is about building a community project uh, with Denise, with community members in Akron and the greater Ohio in partnership with the Knight Foundation and the Kent State University Foundation. It's about building a community project. Um, we look to our community for help, for thoughts, for stories, for ideas. Um, talk to us, send us a message, let us know what you're thinking, let us know if you enjoyed it. My one question is, is funded by a technology grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation's 2021 Knight Arts Challenge. All funding for the project is being handled by the Kent State University Foundation. We are grateful for their partnership and generosity. Say it, that every day is a toast to living, an ode to the way we made resilience and art. My classroom is a self-love anthem in nine parts. Together, we unlearn shame, dream silly, sing what we cannot say anywhere else by Joshua Bennett. There was a um, lecture I was listening to the other day and um, from Winona LaDuke, and she said that when uh, you did indigenous art, it was over in anthropology. But when you did art of Europeans, it was in galleries. It's still very much that. And, and we're at a moment where galleries across the country are really reconciling uh, what they've collected as art or artifact or ethno um, artifact, you know. So that they, those blankets and cups that I'm talking about that are artistic never hangs in the gallery as an art show. It hangs in the gallery as the history of people who used to live here, right? It's more than that. It was always more than that. And so our art galleries, as they are reconciling African art African-American art and really, it really has to do with this racial reckoning that we're in, thank you, Black Lives Matter, uh, that we are starting to have different conversations. We're having different conversations about our Asian siblings because people have been silent and silenced. Be good, just be smart, 
and we don't have to see you. But no, people are saying, no, see us. See us in all of our diversity. Art galleries in this country have very few indigenous folks on those boards. First art that we see in this world are utilitarian pieces, blankets, cups, bowls that we call pottery and they all have artistic designs because the people could have created those and not put any art on them, none, but there's art on those. And so it sets them apart from just being objects that you drink out of or that you carry food in or that you carry your baby in a, a, a bunting that is beaded and has things hanging from it so the baby can be entertained. You know, it didn't just happen in the 20th century when we had rattles, no, those things have always been there. And so ultimately we should be able to identify leadership that comes forward and that leadership should be vi made visible on boards art galleries and curating other works from the community and that we won't define for people what's art. That's, that's the real work. That's that when I could see that for me, that's the success that we can have is that we can show that there are multiple voices in this community and um, some of them should be working with the national park system because whose land are we talking about? Some of them should be on the art museum's board. Somebody should be on Kent State's board because we think about indigenous people in November to be thinking about all year long. And those of us who are African-American understand that clearly when we designate February. Those of us who are women should understand that clearly when we designate March or April when we designate April as Asian Heritage Month. We should not be relegated to a month. We should be talked about, celebrated, thought about the entire calendar year because that's what you do with human beings. You think about them all the time. That's a beautiful vision for this project to bring people um, together and bring people, like you said, identified leadership and bring, you know, bring people into spaces where maybe they didn't have access to before this project. Or if they had access, it was limited. You show us your culture, your artifact, rather than living, breathing, fully humanized individuals who have a whole history whole culture, a language, all of it. The ultimate goal is to first, that it should continue beyond us. And second, we find those artists, not just quilt artists, but other artists are gonna come towards us. I like it. I like it a lot. So I'm gonna change things up a little bit. Your career has been for the most part in academia. So I want to ask you to tell me if there was one thing that you could change in your workplace for the better, what would it be? I think recognition without having to toot your own horn all the time. People know what you do. 
they know that you're doing it. They know when they are inviting you to be on this committee and that committee. And I'm, I'm last over the, the pandemic, I was on four, four or five different committees. I'm not a tenure faculty member, but they want me on that committee because they understand what I could bring to the table. And, and what I don't understand is things like trailblazer awards. You have to get somebody to nominate you and, and, or you self-nominate. People know how much I've contributed. I shouldn't have to toot my horn, but I know that if I don't, you don't get the recognition. And I, I think that's a problem. If you're really good at self-promoting, you can go really, really far. But for some of us, that's just not what we do or how we do it. And so we don't get the rewards. Um, and, you know, we say teaching should be its own reward, but teaching is also frustrating and hard. I think a lot of people who are non-tenure track work really, really incredibly hard. Uh, I think staff people work really, really incredibly hard. I think um, there are a lot of people in the background that make the university go and universities don't always recognize them. And I think we need to do a better job of, of that because uh, I walked into a bathroom and the water was just running out of the sink. And, you know, somebody had to come take care of that. So the message for me had to go to the office manager, the office manager had to go and call somebody in custodial staff to come and then the custodial person cleaned it up. But then we had to have somebody in physical plant who actually had to uh, turn off the power of that water running everywhere. So there are a lot of people that made that, that chain of things happening and not happening. So moving away from this old hierarchical, you know, old school way of doing things in academia, publishing, achieving, it really does undermine everybody else who works at the university. Yeah. Yeah. And it does because I published some things. Uh, we had this thing where we had to send in our, I guess our, I can't, I can't remember the name that they had for it, but it's like your achievements. And then when I went to our um, college's achievement event where the, the intern now um, Dean was promoting and telling us all those achievements, the only achievements that she really talked about was people who brought in big dollars to the university. So if you had a $600,000 grant, a $250,000 grant, uh, then you were mentioned by name and you were highlighted. Now, to apply for a $150,000 grant is a boatload of work and you still have to do your other work. And especially for somebody who is uh, an NTT or an adjunct to do that, that's a lot of work. And Sometimes you're not successful at it, but nobody comes back and say, wow, you know, I know how much work you put in for that. Let's look at what we could do to help make that a, either a smoother process or um, reflect on 
the next time you attempt to do this, what should we know? What should we do? How can we um, give you some good feedback? Because you just get a no from the agency and a thank you from the folks who <laughs> you worked with. Okay, we didn't get it. Okay, sorry. Thanks. You tried. <laughs> and that's the big takeaway is you didn't get funded. Not did that you did all the work to get there. Not that you put yourself out there. Not that you outside of your teaching, you don't have a research uh, requirement in your job. Like, you yeah, you're right. Relief. You just, you'd find a way to do it. And there are some people who will continually do it. I, I have two month, two university projects I'll be working on. But aside from that, I have three projects connected with this to find funding and I'm committed to this project and I will find that funding, but that's, that's also work. And if I tell the university <laughs> that I've done this, you know, there may, may, may or may not be a blurb. It depends on if they say, oh, you should go over and talk to our university communications person and they'll write an article on you and then it'll get out. And there are people who are, like I said, who are really, really good at self-promotion and will, everything they do will, will have a byline. I did it. I did it. I did it. But I'm just, I'm not that kind of animal, but I will talk about this project because I believe in it. Yeah. Um, best book you've read this year. Going on a more casual note here, Denise. <laughs> <laughs> This book I've read this year, I don't know that I've completely read anything except for Toni Morrison because I had set a goal when she passed away that I would read all her books. And so I reread The Bluest Eye this year. So probably the best book I read this year and I've read parts of uh, other books. And I think one of the things why it resonate again for me is because I know if people uh, in the community and outside of the African-American community read the book, they will understand how racism affects people in a very deep psychological, physiology, social way, how damaging it is. If, they, if at the end of The Bluest Eye, you want P. Cola Brie love to have blue eyes, you know she's not well, but you want them for her at the end of that book. And I would say uh, rereading portions with my class of Robin Wall Kimmer's Braiding Sweetgrass, which I'm going to work with someone to create a curriculum around it for, for K through eight. That also resonated with me in the sense that during the pandemic, not getting out, not walking and rediscovering uh, community uh, parks, that I can no longer walk in the park, thank you, Robin Wall Kimmerer, without looking at the moss on the trees and on the foliage, um, without thinking about all the animals in the park that I don't hear and don't listen to, to just walk in the park with somebody, with a companion and shut up and listen. Let the place speak and, and hear it. I'd never done that before reading Kimmerer's work. Um, I just walked the park because I need to get five miles in, right? And 
that was it. I'm, I'm going to do five miles today or two miles here and two miles here. And I've clocked my miles. I have my 10,000 steps and good. But no, listening, listening to what the forest can tell us. And uh, even so that I listened to my foot squish in mud, never thought about mud. And that in that mud, there are species in that mud, plant life and and uh, things that we would say are pest are not pest. Uh, the ecology of the location demands that all those things are there. So that's different. So that book had a, a, a lot to say to me. Um, when we went to Spearfish and, and talking and listening to the stories of our Indigenous siblings, just so much pain in the room. Really, Laura, that was the first time I'd been in a conference where we're celebrating these 13 Indigenous grandmothers, and at the same time, the incredible pain that people are carrying with them. And, it, and, and they haven't had this audience to listen to them. Sometimes it's just listening to each other. And then folks saying, we don't want to hear that. You know, it's, it's painful enough. Uh, I got my own pain. So that, that's a, a wound that I won't say won't heal, but can't heal until we start to listen and come to some resolution on how we're going to have new relationships with people. And out of those new relationships with the people, we could possibly have a new relationship with the earth, with the land with the animals, like, like me walking through the park and saying, hmm, I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to tell my sister, we're not going to talk. Can you imagine? We're going on a, an hour long walk and we're not going to talk to each other. We're just going to listen. Denise, you just reminded me of my favorite part of Braiding Sweetgrass. The very end of her book, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer just has this little couple paragraphs um, and she just sort of sums up the storytelling um, process that she has. So uh, I'm just going to read that to you. I'm a listener, and I've been listening to stories told around me for longer than I care to admit. I mean to honor my teachers by passing on the stories that they have passed on to me. We are told that stories are living beings. They grow, they develop, they remember. They change not in their essence, but sometimes in their dress. They are shared and shaped by the land and the culture, and the teller, so that one story may be told widely and differently. Sometimes only a fragment is shared, showing just one face of a many-faceted story, depending on its purpose. So it is with the stories shared here. The water protectors reading that and reading, uh, reading children's books, uh, a children's book on Middle Passage, uh, I had a, a quilt project that I will be doing this summer on Middle Passage. And this children's book on Middle Passage is exactly what I'm doing in this quilt. Looking at Middle Passage, my ancestors were on the continent of Africa, West Africa. And so I'm making two quilt squares that will show the interior the earth, right? And the indigo. So people, women who are harvesting indigo. 
So the first panel was about them. The second panel is on the coastline, the sand and the water. The next 11 panels are shades of the water. That's all these quilts are gonna show. Middle passage, that's that 12 week process of crossing the ocean. The next, the 12th panel will be the Atlantic Ocean on this side of the ocean. So the land in South Carolina or Georgia or wherever this ship takes us. And then the, the last panel will be two women who are enslaved harvesting indigo because that's that skilled labor that Africans bring with them because Europeans who have these indigo farms know nothing about indigo in the same way they knew nothing about cultivating rice the way they didn't know anything about cultivating cotton or tobacco that knowledge is the knowledge that Africans bring to the quote planter class. And so that quilt is about one, each panel is a yard of fabric, different colors of indigo dyeing that I'm learning my shades of color by looking at pictures of the ocean. And some of those quilt panels will be just black because it's dark. The water's dark, it's dark passage. Maybe I'll throw some stars up, I don't know yet. I haven't gotten that far, but it's, I know that that's the piece. And so I read this children's book uh, from the 1619 project and it's exactly what I had already envisioned that I would do. And in the book, it has the, the water, different colors during the middle passage. And, and at some points, there will be human beings who won't make passage. Either they're sick and they will be thrown overboard or as an act of resistance to take yourself off that ship. Amazing. Yeah, don't think I, I don't think my ninth grade textbook had knowledge as one of the components of the triangle trade there. And it's just putting that into perspective. It's, it's true. And that's just yeah. product, right? One product of the trade. So we got sugar, we got rum. So it's not just the sugar that would be in the jars of, in England on folks' tables who are wealthy, but the rum as well. And even when I was in graduate school, I conceived of a project where I would look at those, not only the tools of the trade in terms of you have to outfit a ship to go get people. And you either have to outfit that ship in your homeland or their homeland. And then the crops that they would actually cultivate would be harmful to them. Sugar, diabetes in this community is rampant. Tobacco, uh, addiction to tobacco, rampant. Uh, alcoholism rampant. Those are three products from triangular trade. And when I was in graduate school, the thing I wanted to write about was those products and those tools. And so I, I think I've come full circle because I'm thinking about how I can take the, um, the skill of 
quilting and, and, and talk about those things because indigo is particular to Africa and Southeast Asia and China. So we have three places where indigo is highly cultivated by people and it's heavily laborious, labor intensive work if you do it in the way that people traditionally did it. That's so cool using a quilt to tell a story because people maybe don't wanna talk about the truth about the past, right? Yeah, well, that's when I say that I like to make quilts that trouble people. They're not easy to talk about, right? People want us to forget and, and forgetting has cost us a lot. Forgetting cost us the stories of our indigenous siblings, uh, the harm that has been done to them, that they are, a lot of people are walking around wounded. In Twethway, uh, Natasha Twethway, it's another book I read because I had to read it for class, I taught it. And in her book, Memorial Drive, A Daughter's Memoir, she chronicles the story of her mother who was murdered by her stepfather. She says that this, this is a wound that won't heal. You know, that trip to Spearfish, it's interesting that you bring that up, that I remember so well that there was a woman there from Manitoba who talked about the missing and murdered Indigenous women. And I had no idea. And I'm as a Canadian living in the U.S., like I had no idea how. And how long ago was that? I just I had no idea how devastating it was, how many women there were or. And I just remember thinking in this relatively small audience, thinking this needs to be louder because how do we not, how do we not know? We didn't have to know. Okay. So what do we learn from today? I think Denise really teaches us about how principles like trust, you know, permeate everything that she does and to be able to step back from your life and, and look at all the different ways that you consider trust, whether it's you trust, putting trust in other people and other people putting trust in you. I think that's really interesting to step back and take a look how it affects all the different areas of your life. I found it so interesting how she kept coming back to stories as a base of uh, relaying trust, of nurturing and building trust with people, and how that's really the core foundation of Not Your Mother's Quilting Bee and what she's going to be doing. There might be a quilt that is being created in that process, but it's the healing and the trust that is being woven into that quilt, metaphorically speaking. And it's that chance to build trust across across different cultures, across um, different ideas, different backgrounds through storytelling to hopefully heal and build something together. Absolutely. I think it's really important to something that you don't um, hear a lot of people do is attribute their sources. You know, Denise always references all of the different influences and you know, and talks about how a book and a story or a poem changed her life or influenced how she teaches. And, and that's something I don't, I don't see a lot of people doing talk about, you know, the shoulders they're standing on 
And I think that's, I think that's really, um, that's really cool too, to, to present, you know, your work and your life and your intentions and your art projects as these collective experiences that are things that grow and have a life of their own, have influences or things like her middle passage quilting project, which is like, uh, you know, a, a full circle experience for, you know, a symbol of her life. I, I liked how throughout when she did quote someone, she, she gave the name, but she also gave the story behind it too, that you're not just citing someone in an academic sense with an MLA uh, citation on the piece of paper. No, it's uh, you're adding the context, the story behind it as a way to show that this person is more than just the words they've put on the page. They're, they've contributed to our knowledge and to our collective storytelling. And even going back to trust, that's how, that's how you can build trust by telling those stories and giving, telling the people, building the character of who's telling those stories to you. Yeah, I think that's the kind of openness and the kind of receptiveness that's needed for this kind of work to be able to be open to um, a bunch of different perspectives and also to stop and say, oh, hey, I learned something here. Or, you know, at one point she talks about, oh, the old me would have disqualified this, you know, but but now I look at things differently. Um, and that's the that's really the heart of a project like um, not your mother's quilting be to, you know, invite people from the community to come together and, you know, and to understand that there's going to be some discomfort, some vulnerability, and the de demand for trust is going to, is going to be there. And, um, you know, Denise also shares a lot of her own personal experiences, relatable, shared human experiences that, you know, she has as a Black woman in the United States. Black woman in Ohio. I think trust is the perfect one to start with. Because without that, without building that trust with both our listeners out there, um, and thank you for listening, uh, it's, it's an opportunity to just create that sense of community through trust, through storytelling. And that's what we hope to do with my qu one question is, is build that trust in our community so that we can work together and tell stories together and hopefully... Hopefully y'all can share stories online too with us. <laughs> yeah, that leads into that, uh, you know, perfectly. We invite you all to share your stories about trust and, you know, um, please uh, feel welcome to send us an email at akronartstory at gmail.com um, or you can share with us on Instagram or Facebook at Akron Art Story and share your stories about trust. And we'd love to share them with the rest of, uh, with the rest of our growing community of people as we, you know, spend the next eight months or so working through all the different principles um, involved in starting a community project like um, Not Your Mother's Quilting Bee. And um, yeah, thanks again to Denise for uh, coming on and kicking off this series as uh, the person who had the vision for this project. And uh, let's see where this, uh, let's see where this takes us. My one question is, is funded by a technology grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation's 2021 Knight's Art Challenge. All funding for the project is being handled by the Kent State University Foundation. If you like what you heard today, please follow us 
at Akron Art Story on Instagram and Facebook. Please consider becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com slash Akron Art Story. You can see our goals for the project and find out how you can be a part of the Akron Art Story.